from Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Tales of lawlessness and vigilante justice on the open ocean with Pulitzer Prize winning author Ian Urbina. I got a call from a source at Interpol who said, hey, have you heard about this thing going on down in Antarctica? It's the longest law enforcement chase on the sea and it doesn't involve law enforcement. It's this conservation group who are sort of chasing this Interpol most wanted ship. And I said, wow, that sounds epic. Let me try to see if I can get on board. Also restorative ocean farming for a sustainable food source and ocean health. We can grow our kelp from the surface vertically downward, right next to mussels in mussel socks, scallops in lantern nets. These are all vertical. And that's good because it has a small footprint, very much like vertical farming in urban areas. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As government leaders, scientists, and civil society from around the world meet at the UN's COP25 climate change negotiations in Madrid, some localities in the U.S. are stepping forward to fill the gap left by President Trump's refusal to engage. One example is Brookline, Massachusetts, an inner suburb of Boston with about 60,000 residents. Brookline is awaiting final state approval of a bylaw which would largely prohibit the installation of any new oil and gas pipelines in new or substantially renovated buildings. This legislation will be the first of its kind east of the Mississippi, and it is expected to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 15 percent for the town over the next 30 years. Here to explain is Lisa Cunningham, co-petitioner of the bylaw. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you so much for having me. So you're an architect. What are you talking about doing in a building that you might be asked to design to, to get out of using natural gas? So what you can do in terms of your heating and cooling needs is that you can use either air source heat pumps or ground source heat pumps, which many people refer to as geothermal. Right now, these systems are cost effective and have been used frequently in building construction. The big change is that air source heat pumps used to be not applicable for colder climates in terms of being able to heat in very low temperatures. Now that's changed and air source heat pumps can heat buildings to minus 15 degrees and Brookline never gets that cold. Now, although you had almost a unanimous vote in favor of this, I'm sure there were some concerns that came up through the process. How did you address those? So you wound up with a virtually unanimous decision by the town. That's a great question. So we actually listened very hard to what our constituents and also what various stakeholders were saying, the questions that they had. And then we actually came up with some exemptions to address people's concerns. So one thing that we found out early on was that it's very hard to provide domestic hot water for buildings of over 10,000 square feet. So we made an exemption for that. We also made an exemption first for restaurant cooking because we found out that although a lot of things are possible with restaurant cooking, there are some pieces of equipment that still aren't there in terms of cost. We also established a waiver process so that if there are certain projects that come up, it's very easy to apply for and get a waiver. So let me see if I understand your town bylaw. Essentially, any new building or something that's being substantially renovated really has to jump through some hoops if they want to have natural gas pipes. Correct. 
you are allowed to keep your existing piping, but you are not allowed to install or move new piping. Now, what about the cost of this? To what extent is this going to raise costs for people who are doing renovation or new construction? Well, we actually did a lot of research into this. And to our surprise, we actually found out that these systems are essentially cost neutral. There's a very little variation in terms of installation costs. One thing that's also interesting as well is that for low-income housing, there's a lot being done. In Brookline already, two major building projects that have already started in town are installing air source heat pumps for their heating system and cooling. The residents are thrilled because they will actually be getting air conditioning along with their heating. And the low-income housing authority in Brookline actually made this decision prior to us bringing this warrant article to the town. Now, I believe Berkeley, California was the first city to have uh, strong restrictions on natural gas and new buildings, and there's been kind of a ripple effect. What other cities and towns are you expecting to inspire with this move? We are hoping to build a movement around this. The only way we can reduce our carbon emissions is to stop using fossil fuels. And so we're very much hoping that other towns and cities will follow us. It just makes no sense to install systems that will last for 30 years when we know we have to be ripping these systems out. What role does climate justice play in this bylaw? Thanks for asking that question. It's a very important question. Climate justice is a very important part of this bylaw. We felt it was very important to make sure that underserved communities were getting the same benefits of this bylaw that everybody else in Brookline would get. And we were completely satisfied by the fact that this is very affordable for low-income housing. And also, as, as you know, our climate crisis disproportionately affects people who are at risk already. And so this was a very critical part of our warrant article. Lisa Cunningham was a co-petitioner of the Brookline, Massachusetts bylaw restricting natural gas in new and heavily reconstructed buildings. Ms. Cunningham, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Well, it's that time in the program when we take a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia, I think. Peter, are you there? I'm here, Steve. I want to talk a little bit about coal capacity and coal use around the world. You know, we've heard so much. We've talked here so much about how coal is in decline in the U.S. Power plants are closing or converting to renewables, converting to natural gas. Coal is also in decline in Europe in a big way. But both of those declines, which will help climate change, are being offset by something that's going to cause more climate change. And that's that China is building so much more coal power capacity that all of the gains in the rest of the world are negated. Well, that's not good news, Peter. What else do you have? Well, I've got some more not-so-good news uh, from Siberia. 
the Northeast Passage shipping route that's opening up with the melting Arctic along the Russian Siberian coast is going to be the site of some more traffic of coal ships. India has a goal of drastically increasing its steel production. They need anthracite coal to do that. And one of the best untapped sources of anthracite coal is Siberian Russia. So it sounds like the worse things get, the worse things are getting. Um, What else do you have today for us? FEMA's aid to Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands has stalled. Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, of course, were devastated by Hurricane Maria and uh, Hurricane Irma two years ago. The Miami Herald recently reported that about one-third of the claims by Puerto Rican homeowners to FEMA to help them rebuild have been denied. There's a tremendous amount of bureaucracy attached to this, and a lot of people living with blue tarps instead of a real roof over their head from a hurricane that happened two years, two months ago. And uh, now what's happened to rebuilding the electric infrastructure there in Puerto Rico? Well, with infrastructure like the uh, damage claims, payments in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands are way behind what FEMA's done in Texas and Florida. But with electric, you may recall that early on there was a scandal involving a two-person firm called Whitefish Energy from Whitefish, Montana. They got a $300 million contract to rebuild the Puerto Rican uh, electric infrastructure. This firm happens to be in the hometown of then Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. Whitefish says they've already spent $126 million of that $300 million contract and that they've never been paid. They're suing the federal government and utilities that subcontracted to Whitefish suing whitefish. So it's a big, big legal mess. Yeah. And of course, that contract was voided out, I guess, by the federal government. But still, somebody has to pay. Uh, Hey, what do you have from the history vaults for us this week? Going to go back to December 5th, 1848. What was the equivalent back then of the State of the Union speech? President James K. Polk, who's not known for a whole lot, but maybe he should be known for saying something that jump-started the growth of the state of California. And that was? He talked about gold being discovered in California, specifically at Sutter's Mill, not far from Sacramento. And here's what he said. The explorations already made warrant the belief that the supply is very large and that gold is found in various places in an extensive district of country. Of course, people like gold then and even now. What happened? 60,000 people made it to California in the year 1849 alone And bear in mind, these aren't people who took the Transcontinental Railroad because there wasn't one. They didn't take a relatively easy voyage through the Panama Canal because there wasn't a Panama Canal. Most of these folks went all the way around South America, around Cape Horn, in a journey that sometimes took several months. So 60,000 people, um, that was enough to make a state, right? That's right. The beginning of 1848, California was still... Mexican territory. It was ceded to the U.S. The gold strike happened later in the year. The gold rush happened in 49. And by 1850, California became the 31st state. Well, that's history for you. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at the Living on Earth website, loe.org. If
If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. About 70% of our planet is covered by the oceans, yet we know more about the surface of the moon than the deep ocean. With such little attention from society, it's also no surprise that lawlessness is rampant out on the open ocean, with crimes ranging from illegal fishing to slavery at sea. New York Times investigative reporter Ian Urbina spent a number of years researching and writing his new book, The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. At times, he risked his life in his quest to shed light on the dark corners of our seas. Ian recently joined me at the New England Aquarium near our Boston studios for a live event to share some of his stories. Ian, let me just start by asking you, the outlaw ocean, to what extent do we understand that there's no law out there? I mean, in this society, we live where, hey, if you have a parking ticket, they come for you and they boot your car. I mean, there's a whole system of accountability. And yet out there, there's not. Yes, yeah, so I approach this space both as a frontier and as an outlaw, by which I mean an extra legal space. It's not the case that there are no laws. There are lots of laws. But the laws are often written in a murky or contradictory way. And then also laws are only as good as their enforcement. And especially on the high seas in international waters, there's no you know police force that is out there patrolling. So while there are isolated cases of enforcement, um, they're rare. You decided to, and um, forgive me uh, about this pun, bookend <laughs> Outlaw Ocean with stories about the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. What about their journey stood out to you? And especially you have to tell us the story of the thunder. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Sea Shepherd is this interesting organization, self-described as a vigilante ocean conservation group. It's an organization that has a large fleet of ships and they go around the world patrolling. And so the book is, as you say, bookended with two Sea Shepherd stories. The front story is about Sea Shepherd's campaign to chase the world's most wanted illegal fishing vessel called the Thunder. And then the last chapter of the book is a look at a very different campaign, which was uh, Sea Shepherd's harassing of Japanese whaling ships that are whaling arguably illegally on high seas. And so the Thunder, the bottom line with this story was that there has been this purple Interpol list, which essentially is a sort of arrest on site list. And ships would be put on this purple list if they had engaged in demonstrable repeat illegalities over a length of time. And the Thunder, by some metrics, topped the purple list because it had well-documented decade worth of illegal fishing, largely in the Southern Ocean, largely aimed at the Patagonian toothfish, also known as uh, Chilean sea bass and to the tune of $67 million. And Sea Shepherd said, it's very frustrating that there is this list out there. And yet these ships, to a large degree, are allowed to operate without difficulty. They catch their fish legally or illegally. They go into port, they offload, and they go on, and no one ever arrests them. So Sea Shepherd said, 
we'd like to do something about it. We'd like to sort of show governments that A, we can find these guys, and B, then once we find them, we're going to harass them. And as different from their whaling campaign, where they would actually ram the Japanese and do more aggressive things, on this mission, Sea Shepherd decided, we're not going to ram them. We're just going to trail them. And every time the ship attempts to enter port, we will raise a stink, you know, contact the media, embarrass the local government, et cetera. And the first task was, let's start with the thunder, tops the list. We got to find these guys. Sea Shepherd did that within two, three weeks, found the thunder nets in the water in an illegal space in Antarctica. And um, thus began this sort of epic tale of what became what some folks have said is the longest using a loophole in international law to ostensibly legally provide these abortions. Here again, kind of a textbook example of a character who's using the law to beat the law. Okay, so you have to tell us the story. Yeah, so Rebecca Gompert's a gynecological doctor, Dutch citizen, worked for Greenpeace for a number of years, and in that work saw some troubling situations with girls and women who needed abortion, could not get access to them. And so she started her own organization called Women on Waves, which essentially for the past decade and a half, two decades, has operated a ship that goes to countries where abortion is both illegal and often dangerous. And she and her team come into national waters, into port, usually surreptitiously, quietly, plugs into sort of an underground network of healthcare providers who know of cases of girls and women who are in need, and then quietly brings these women and girls out to international waters. And because the way that maritime law works, such that when you're outside of national waters, the law that applies is the law of the flag that you fly. And because her ship is flagged to Austria, the minute the ship would get outside of national waters into international waters, then it becomes legal for her to administer RU486 pills that would cause an abortion. So she would do this whole process very quietly, then return the young women back to shore and make sure their anonymity was safe. And then she would hold a press conference to sort of instigate a debate. And that's usually when she would get kicked out of the country, um, <laughs> as you can predict. imagine. So um, I have to ask you another adventure story. I think you said your mother swallowed pretty hard when you told her that you were going to Somalia. She was none too pleased. Yeah. <laughs> and not to spoil the story necessarily, but, well, you can tell us whether or not mom was right. Mom, it's always right, for the record. <laughs> yeah, so I told mom very little about actually where I was going before I left. I just said, I'm going to go to Kenya, and then I might dip into Somalia, but that's as much as I said. Yeah, the Somalia story was an example of a story where I went in aiming to tell one story, which was actually going to be a good news story about an unusual, successful case of law enforcement where the Somalis and the Kenyans had gotten along and worked together and they'd caught these repeat offenders. And I did everything by the book because there had been some really bad cases of kidnapping of reporters working on this very topic. And so, so I had permission from the key tribal leaders, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, within a week of being in Puntland, which is mildly put sort of what Texas is to Washington, D.C., Puntland is to Mogadishu in the sense that it is part of the country, but no offense to Texans in the room, but very proudly, defiantly kind of autonomous. And in Puntland's case, it's also the launching zone for a lot of the illegality. So it's hard to write a book about the outlaw ocean and not go to Somalia and not go to Puntland specifically, but it's very hard to get into Puntland. The roads are run by ISIS and Al-Shabaab. 
So you got to fly in, you can't go by road. And then when you're in there, you got to be really careful about who your security is, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I thought we had it all set up. The short version, everything went upside down. We ended up losing our security, being told we needed to leave, but there was no plane out and we had no way to get out. So we had to hide on the roof of our compound for a while until we could sort of sneak our way out and wait for a plane to come get us. So there you are hiding on the roof. You've ordered up some security to escort you out to the one plane in the next two or three days. Take us to that moment. What what do you hear? Yeah, so I had a special satellite device, so I was still able to text with sources. And the CIA has a drone base not far, and I knew some people over there. And there were no Westerners in our area, and Shabab was moving in and blowing stuff up, heading towards the compound where we were. And I was getting a lot of intel that was saying, there's a lot of chatter about you guys. Everyone knows you're in there and it's not good and you need to get out quickly. But we had no way out. And I had a fixer who is an American based in Kenya who, who knew the fish scene. I had Fabio, my Brazilian photographer, and myself. And the intel we were getting streaming in was saying, you got to get out. Your persona non grata, the Puntland government said they're more than displeased with you because they don't want you investigating these Thai vessels that are there and they're convinced you're CIA, et cetera, et cetera. Then we started getting even more worrisome intel, which was that within our security detail, we had about 20 guys. There were folks who were loyal to the president of Puntland, et cetera. And so our threat was internal, not just external. So then I got really nervous. We had this meeting with the head of security at the compound and myself and the one guy that I really trust who, a guy named Tige, who is a, a tribal kind of figure and, and very loyal and probably saved my life. And Tige and I decided our plan was to make it look like we were still in the room because there was a courtyard that could see where we were staying, leave the lights on, pull the drapes, make it look like we're staying there, let all of our security go except for Tigay's three cousins, who he knew to trust, and then we would quietly go to the roof and hide out there, but very few people would know we were there. And if a hit occurred, it would hit on our room, and then we would do what? I don't know. I guess sort of try to run, but where to? These were not questions I had clear answers for. So that's exactly what we did. We hit up on the roof for a final night and there was a plane that was going to be brought in early for us and we just need to make it to the next morning. And so we hit up there for that night. Then the next morning, our plan was to get certain guards that Tigay could call in to help us get to the airport. The roads from where we were to the airport were sort of very narrow roads. You're in a fishbowl. And these were the very roads that we would have to go through to get to the airport. And there was really only one route we would follow. And everyone knew that there was one plane that had come in. So everyone knew when those Western guys were going to leave the compound because there was one plane. So it just seemed like a formula for us to get hit. And so our hope was to leave really early with some reinforcements. That plan didn't go well either because the plane said they were going to leave early and we had to go with no guards and just sort of make a run for it. And during our run, we were stopped by two pickup trucks full of armed guys who are not in uniform. And I thought, we have these SOS buttons on our iPhones, and I had given the fixer and the photographer clear orders on, if we got stopped and pulled out, here's what we should all do. And there we were stopped and being pulled out. And that was, you know, kind of this the scariest moment of the time. But in the end, it turned out that these were Tigay's guys. So we were very lucky and these guys sort of pulled us out, checked us out, and then put us back in and we raced to the airport and got out. 
Did you kiss the airplane? <laughs> I kiss. I kissed the ground. I kissed many people. <laughs> I can't even remember who. <laughs> there's there's a line at the end of your book, and it's going to be better in your voice. This is from page four hundred and eight of the Outlaw Ocean. Yeah. So the ocean is outlaw not because it is inherently good or bad, but because it is a void. Like silence is to sound or boredom is to activity. While we have for centuries embraced and touted the life that springs from these waters, we've tended to ignore its role as a refuge of depravity. But the outlaw ocean is real, as it has been for centuries, and until we reckon with that fact, we can forget about ever taming or protecting this frontier. So, what's the fix? What's the fix? Yeah, some say the ocean is just too big, it's too vast to be brought to heel. And you would say? I would say, if I wrote a book about injustice, right, and someone said, so what do we do to stop injustice? I would probably say, we start by not asking that question because it's too broad. And I couldn't possibly answer at that altitude. Similarly, what do we do to fix the outlaw ocean? That's kind of like, how do we win the war? And I would immediately say, don't think about the war. Just choose your battles and figure out which of the specific components of that war are the ones that you feel most motivated to tackle, right? So again, if it's ocean dumping or plastic pollution or murder or protection of seafarers or you know how we handle stowaways post 9-11 or seafood supply chains, I think the smartest move is to not think about the war. I do think there are some solutions that are emerging that traverse those silos that sort of cross them that would benefit the environmental and the human rights and labor issues. So for example, if you think of the aeronautics industry, if you were to walk up to a pilot of a 747 and say, so you've called ahead, they know you're coming. We'll see you your entire route. You're gonna keep that thing on. We know what cargo you're carrying. We know everyone on board, all their names are registered on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. These answers would be readily and easily answered, right? In much of the world in the long haul fishing realm, if you asked a boat captain these questions, they would look at you like you were crazy to even be asking those questions. So there is a cultural issue that needs to be confronted that's in the maritime space that allows this realm and those who operate in it a certain level of liberty that is a core problem in my view. And so whether ships have a unique identifier, a license plate that everyone can see that stays the same, and there are serious consequences if you attempt to change it, that would be one step. It not being normal or allowed to turn off your transponder, and in fact, imposing transponders that you can't turn off at all, another thing that could be a big step forward. These are lofty ideals difficult to actually implement, but could be a big step forward to like actually tracking who's moving what, where, and how, and what's happening to the fish and the people that work there. And I have to ask this as well, through all these difficult situations, share with us an uplifter. There's a lot of beauty out there, both in the space and the people. That's why I often say like, it's extra legal. Even sometimes it's purely illegal, but it's not always bad. The characters I met along the way, the sort of underground network of 
anti-trafficking advocates who specialize in helping sea slaves, essentially debt bonded or even just Shanghai workers, some of them shackled, escape is really inspiring. And often those guys are breaking laws. The Rebecca Gompertz types that are out there trying to use the law in creative ways and use the high seas in creative ways to help in their view, I think are really impressive. And then also just for all the gloominess of the reporting and, and the abuses it highlights, for the most part, the crew on these vessels, some of them as young as 13, their will to survive, their sort of scrappy ingenuity to make the time pass, their camaraderie, their sense of humor, their work ethic is really inspiring. They're not sort of downtrodden, somber-faced, even in the midst of really harsh conditions. So I find those things inspiring. Ian Urbina's new book is called The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Ian, thanks so much for spending the time with us. Thank you. Coming up, the life and legacy of William Ruckelshaus, the first EPA administrator of the United States, just ahead here on Living on Earth. Our sponsor, ExoProtein, sent us some cricket snacks in the mail. Cricket protein bars and whole roasted crickets. So we had a few of our producers step into the studio to give them a try. What? Ten different flavors? I'm excited. Oh, my God. The crickets that are in this are born and raised in Austin, Texas. I love that. The Texas crickets and the Texas barbecue, that's great. Wow. Oh, that's so good. Mmm. Yeah. All right, Ainsley. You know that, like, producing meat obviously requires quite a lot of water. Yes. But if you use crickets... You can use just 0.05% of the water that it takes to make the same amount of cow protein. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, why are we even eating chicken anymore? You know, like, we have crickets. We have insects. <laughs> so much more sustainable. To try for yourself and to support the show, log on to exoprotein.com and use coupon code EARTH for 15% off. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As we heard before the break, life on the high seas can be unforgiving and even deadly. But plenty of rough-and-tumble fishermen choose a life on the ocean. A love of the sea and the adventure it can provide has been drawing in fishermen for generations. One of them is Bren Smith. Bren Smith left high school in Newfoundland when he was just 14 and took up work on fishing boats in the open ocean. In his new book, Eat Like a Fish, Bren chronicles some of his adventures at sea and his new job, farming. And to be clear, he's now an ocean farmer and founder of Green Wave, an organization dedicated to sustainable and restorative ocean farming. To learn more, Living on Earth's Liz Malloy caught up with Bren Smith on his fishing boat in the Thimble Islands off Branford, Connecticut. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about your restorative ocean farm? What are you doing here? 
I used to be a commercial fisherman and um, over the years I've been on this journey to try to figure out what does it make sense to grow in the ocean. Like ask the ocean, what should we grow? Like how should we farm it? And if you ask the ocean that, it says something pretty simple. It says, why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? And so we're out here trying to reimagine aquaculture and grow a mix of shellfish and seaweeds. Like grow as many things as we, as we can in a 20-acre area, but not any species. Species that restore rather than deplete ecosystems. So something like our kelp soaks up five times more carbon than land-based plants. It's called the sequoia of the sea. Our shellfish filter nitrogen out of the water column, where our farms are really creating these really dynamic ecosystems that mimic Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And why do you call it 3D ocean farming? So we call 3D ocean farming because it uses the entire water column. When you farm underwater, if you just create a simple rope scaffolding system of buoys, anchors, and ropes, it's really cheap. Right? It doesn't cost much money to start one of these farms, but it's a really efficient use of space. So we can grow our kelp from the surface vertically downward, right next to mussels in mussel socks, scallops in lantern nets. These are all vertical. And then we have oyster cages down below and clams in the mud. And just really using every bit of water we can. And that's good because it has a small footprint. Um, you know, very much like vertical farming in urban areas. Why do you feel like you are in this position where you are now with restorative ocean farming? So. I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada, a little fishing village called Maddoxco, right next to a fisherman's co-op. You know, kids were selling cod tongues door to door. Dropped out of high school when I was 14 and headed out to sea, fished in Gloucester, Lynn, Massachusetts, you know, tuna, lobster, then headed to the Bering Sea where I fished cod and crab. And I was working at the height of industrialized fishing, you know, tearing up entire ecosystems with our trawls. We were chasing fewer and fewer fish further and further out to sea. And most of the fish I was catching was going to McDonald's for the fish sandwich, which is a sandwich I still love and sneak away to eat uh, <laughs> regularly, but don't tell the foodies that. Um, and I love that job. So even though we were destroying ecosystems, you know, just the humility of being in 40-foot seas, that sense of solidarity of being in the belly of a boat, working with other folks, and that sense of meaning of helping feed my country. But then the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland, and that was a real wake-up call for a whole generation of us, and it's what taught me that not protecting ecosystems is not an environmental issue. It's not about birds and bees and bears. It's about jobs. It's about kitchen table issues. Like there will be no jobs on a dead ocean. And that's when I kind of joined the environmental movement in a, in a certain way. And, you know, the, our journey now into climate change is the same thing. There'll be no jobs on a dead planet. There'll be no food on a dead planet. So I remade myself as sort of an early ocean farmer growing salmon. And that was supposed to be the answer to overfishing, right? In job creation, we we're going to feed the planet. Instead, it was just, you know, essentially pig farms out at sea, polluting local waterways, growing really neither fish nor food. And what aquaculture did at that point was try to grow around existing markets. So grow what people want to eat. So people want to eat salmon, they want to eat tuna, that's what they grow. And I got disillusioned and then kept searching. And I ended up here in Long Island Sound and remade myself as an oysterman. It was just the beginning of early boutique, sort of specialty oyster companies emerging. And I was right outside New York. So I built a business around that. And then Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Sandy came in and destroyed my farm two years in a row. And so suddenly I found myself like on the front edge a canary in the coal mine of the climate crisis that arrived essentially 100 years earlier than we were expecting. 
So that was a, you know, a depressing time for two years in a row and seeing this as a new normal, but it forced me to adapt, you know, and I think some of the best creativity, and this gives me hope in the era of climate change, comes when humans are in crisis, right? And that's really where we are. So I just took from the oyster that question of, you know, what should we be growing in the, in the ocean and learned that there were thousands of edible plants, hundreds of kind of shellfish we could grow. And that was the beginning of uh, my journey. So in your book, you include some recipes, which are pretty great. They looked really tasty, and I'm kind of excited. I want to try some. Where did you find these recipes? Did you come up with them? Like, where'd they come from? Yes, so uh, we've worked with a lot of chefs over the years. And what's been interesting is I started by working with seafood chefs. And it turns out seafood chefs were not the right folks to figure out what to do with sea vegetables. They kept on like making seaweed salads or wrapping it around fish. And then I discovered this other sector, which people that specialize in making vegetables unhealthy. And I think Brooks Headley out of New York, who's a former pastry chef and a punk rock drummer and that now runs Superiority Burger, and he's figured out how to make vegetables absolutely delicious and not mm -hmm. worry about the health. So I gave him the kelp, and he immediately made kelp noodles, barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. It's just brilliant, right? The heat of the barbecue sauce, that softness of the parsnips, the crunch of the breadcrumbs, mm -hmm. and it just completely desuchifies seaweeds. And, you know, people eat it and they just, they don't even think seaweed. So, and another chef we work with who has recipes is Dave Santos, who's an incredible Portuguese chef in New York. And just luckily, we're at this incredible moment of uh, sort of American culinary sort of experimentation. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to change tastes, right? It's slow. And we don't really have time to bank everything on just changing taste. So our other strategy is to make seaweeds the soy of the sea, but not evil, right? Soy is extremely problematic. We all know the story about deforestation, things like that. We don't have that trouble with seaweeds. But the soy industry did something fascinating in the 50s. They sat down and said, okay, we're never gonna get Americans to eat soy, so we'll put it in everything and look at any label, whether it's like furniture to food, uh, you're gonna find soy in there. It's just woven through all the industries. So we can take our seaweeds and do the same thing because seaweed's an incredible fertilizer that's been used for 100 years. It can be used as animal feed. If you feed cows a 2% diet of asparagopsis, you'll get a 58% reduction in methane output and this yeah. delicious tasting uh, meat and milk. It's stunning. We can use it for uh, bioplastics. So the London Marathon just had seaweed uh, water bottles. Wow. Right? So imagine that we've got this plastic crisis in the ocean that's killing our oceans. And as farmers, we could actually grow crops that we can turn into packaging. Mm -hmm. Like this gives me hope. And if we do this right and we grow these crops, we can just weave it through so many different industries and create jobs and don't have to wait just for changing taste. Yeah. So your farm serves as a new ecosystem for so many different species that are living in these waters, as well as a community space. Can you talk about that? I mean, it's designed to be a community space. We don't own those waters. What we own is the right to grow shellfish and seaweeds. Anybody can come boat, swim, fish on the farm. And it turns out that if you start farming all these species together and do a polyculture system, you're recreating, you're just mimicking mother nature, which then attracts all these different species, whether it's, you know, ducks or seals or striped bass or crabs, it becomes this living ecosystem. As a farmer, you then just become a steward of this area. And so we can mix both revival of the ecosystem, creating these shoreline parks that people can enjoy while also saving and protecting these community space. I mean, th think of these as underwater community gardens. That's amazing. So how did you really start becoming an advocate against climate change? And are you seeing this becoming 
more of a common thing in the fishing community. So, I mean, I became active in the climate movement, not out of choice. It was because my job was directly impacted. You know, my farm was wiped out by Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Sandy. Climate change was supposed to be this slow lobster boil that happened over 100 years. Instead, it's it's here and now. So I don't have a, a choice, right? I didn't come to this as an environmentalist. I came to this with the perspective that there are going to be no jobs, no food on a dead like that I have a stake at this. And I think the new climate movement isn't just about environmentalists. It's people from all walks of life that are being impacted by this, this crisis and all of us coming together to figure out solutions. One well, of the first things we did was we took our boat down to the climate march in New York, took a, a group of uh, shell fishermen and fishermen down there. And I was amazed that you know, we joined the people doing urban gardening in Detroit. We joined the, the coal miners who were trying to solarize the haulers, you know, and I just felt the first time like, this is my community. It's really interesting that you say that that felt like a real community for you. I mean, I think climate change has done so many things, but one of the things it's really done is brought so many people from different walks of life together to figure out different ways to survive and move forward to thrive. I think of it as the politics of yes. Right, where we're all coming together around solutions. Like environmentalists, traditional been the politics of no, you stop pipelines, you know, you stop hog farms, and that's the politics of no, it needs to be done. Right? But we now need a politics of yes, of, of what are we going to build, what are we going to do? It's not about waiting for other people to do this and for us to decide, you know, is it good or bad? It's like, let's build the future we want. What's exciting on the ocean is that it's kind of a blank slate. Like we can actually do food right, do agriculture the right way, take all the lessons of industrial agriculture, all the lessons of industrial aquaculture, and not make the same mistakes, right? We can weave justice into the DNA of this new economy, make sure, you know, young beginning farmers or indigenous folks, women all have you know, access to this new economy. We can make sure our seed isn't privatized, make sure people do polyculture, not monoculture. I mean, I think that's the exciting thing. Like we can actually build a new economy from the ground up and do it in the right way. And that's, you know, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, it's incredible. So you saw some pretty crazy things as a commercial fisherman, and this is somewhat of a calmer lifestyle now. So how are you adjusting yeah. to that? Yeah, I mean, it was rough, right? I mean, you know, I can't go to the same bars I used to, and right? I'll get beat up. What am I going to be like? Yeah, I was out today, and I pulled up this amazing piece of kelp. Like, I got to hang out with arugula farmers and drink tea or something, right? <laughs> this was not the path for me, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a hunter. I'm a, you know, I, I'm that sort of last generation of folks that hunt the earth for food. But I've had to say goodbye to it. And um, I really had to rewire my nervous system. But over time, I've, I've really learned to love it. It is an amazing feeling to lift a wall of plants out of the ocean, right? And this sort of the shimmering, sort of deep brown colors, it really has, has changed me. I do miss being a fisherman. I miss that sort of adventure of the high seas, the thrill of chasing fish around the globe, but I still get to die on my boat one day. Like that's the measure. Like, I'm out here on the Mookie, and I'll be able to say goodbye to the world as I sink into the ocean. Like, I think that, that'll be enough for me. Our visit with Brent Smith was reported by Liz Malloy and produced by Paloma Beltran. Only one person has ever served as an administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under two presidents, and that's William D. Ruckelshaus, who died the day before Thanksgiving. 
William Ruckel's house was the very first EPA administrator, appointed by President Nixon in 1970, and in addition to laying the foundation for the agency and defining its mission, he oversaw the implementation of the Clean Air Act in 1970. Soon after, he was tapped to run the FBI as acting director and then named Deputy Attorney General. He was also fired by President Nixon during the Saturday Night Massacre for refusing to dismiss the Watergate special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. Back in 2010, we spoke with William Ruckelshaus about his career and his reflections on how the EPA had its origins in Earth Day activism that put pressure on President Nixon to protect the environment. To centralize that enforcement and regulatory responsibility at the national level uh, made it much more difficult for industry to escape reasonable rules guiding their emissions into the air and water uh, by running to a safe haven to some state that did not as strictly enforce the standards. Uh, So I felt that we had to uh, initially show the American people we were serious about this by strictly not only setting the standards, but strictly enforcing them to let people know that we meant business. Now, you come back for a second bite of the apple of the EPA when you become administrator again. What, it's 1983? It's during the Reagan administration. Tell me, why did you come back, and and what changed for you in terms of your sense of the agency's mission? I came back because the agency was in trouble, and Burford, who had been appointed by President Reagan, uh, had gotten herself in a whole lot of trouble, as did other appointees. Uh, They sort of Uh, bought the line that often is taken by Republicans in an administration that a lot of this social regulation, regulation to protect health, safety, and the environment uh, is an overreaction and the result of a sort of nanny state. And she got in a lot of trouble as a result, and President Reagan asked me to come back and help straighten the agency out. Now, wait a second. You're a Republican. Right. Well, yeah, I guess I still am, barely. Uh, I believe you did support Barack Obama for president. Yeah, that's right. I haven't changed my mind all that much in the last 40 years, but the Republican Party certainly has moved. What I think the Republican Party has done recently is sort of give up on the environment. They rarely talk about it. I don't think many of the candidates or even their constituents think about it that often. And I think that's a shame because these problems, many of them are real and need to be addressed in an aggressive way, uh, or we'll get in real trouble. William Ruckelshaus, the first and fifth administrator of the EPA, who died November 27th at the age of 87. He will be missed. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Marilyn Hagiomeri, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Anna Saldinger, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, 
supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.